From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching actor, writer, and comedian Rami Youssef. He's received an Emmy nomination for Best Lead Actor in a Comedy Series for his role as Rami Hassan on Hulu's Rami. Rami co-created the series, which is making history this award season as the first Muslim-American sitcom to receive an Emmy nomination. There's almost this burden on it to be the umbrella for all these ideas. And it's ridiculous. And, and, and that's why representation is so tricky, because what do you want represented? Do you want good storytelling or are you looking for PR for a group of people that has been buried into the ground? And our show is certainly not PR. Rami is certainly not the model citizen. I think that's a better story. It kind of brings up probably conflicting thoughts as to whether people find it to be the representation they wanted. Rami opens up about his own identity and how his family is celebrating his Emmy nomination back in Egypt. Plus, he tells me about the making of season two and how Mahershala Ali changed the course of the series. Let's get to it. This episode is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus drama series, The Morning Show. Nominated for eight Emmys, including those for actors Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, and Martin Short, and director Mimi Leader. The Guardian calls the series a masterpiece. Visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Well, Rami, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you at this stage of quarantine versus the early days? I feel like I've regressed. Like, I feel like I'm back in March, but I don't know how you're feeling. There's this new sinking feeling of this is what it's going to be for a while. March was like a state of shock and a a bit of like felt very post-apocalyptic. And then now... I'm kind of amazed at how quickly we adapt because now I'm just like, okay, cool. I have a mask. I sanitize every five seconds. I this, I that, like it all feels oddly normal. And then every once in a while, someone will talk about like a party from the past and it sounds like just another era completely. (laughs) And so it's weird. It's weird. There's a, there's definitely, um, on one hand it, it's, it's like we're adjusted. And then on the other hand, it's, uh, it's really unknown. What's that like one small thing that you took advantage of pre-COVID that you're like desperately wanting back in your life? Like, I just want to roam the aisles of Target without fear, but that'll be a while. (laughs) Like, what are you missing? Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, I like listening to music on the subway, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm half and half between LA between New York and yeah, even the ability to kind of move like that too. This is the longest I've been living in LA since 2012. This is the longest I've been in LA. I've never consecutively stayed here in this way. So just travel obviously could be completely off the off the map. But then it's also there's just some nights where you're like, ah, this is this night is an arc light night. Like I was supposed to go to the arc light and watch a movie tonight. <laughs> 
And now, you know, that's, that's not um, an option. And so, but yeah, these aren't, yeah, not crazy problems, but shifts. Well, I want to read you some names for a second. Don Cheadle, Anthony Anderson, Eugene Levy, Ted Danson, Michael Douglas, Rami Youssef. What went through your mind Emmy nominations morning? And tell me how you celebrate it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was very surreal. And, and I think it's, awards are such an interesting thing because I think there's kind of a, an attitude, I think, amongst a lot of creatives, which is like, ah, they don't get it right or they don't matter or it kind of is whatever. And I think that's true on a level, but on another level, they really do matter. I mean, when you're, especially when you're someone like me who has a, a small show by um, all accounts who I started my show with no celebrity star power on our roster and we're out there trying to make a show get picked up for another season. This kind of recognition um, simply just allows you to continue to make things. And, and, and that's such an, uh, an integral part of, of, of this whole thing. So it's less the like ego excitement of, whoa, I'm on that list, which obviously is kind of surreal. I mean, and, and it gets even more surreal, I think, when um, American press is cool. The crazy thing to me is getting news footage from Cairo, from Egypt, where there are these magazines and late night shows and all these places flipping out over an Emmy nomination. That's the kind of thing that's so surreal because it's like my aunt who's never seen my show calling me and she's like, the whole country's praying for you to win the Emmys. That's the kind of thing where I'm like, whoa, this is that. And, and, and it's so, it's just so, the scale is so out of proportion, right? Where here I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm an Emmy nominated thing, Hulu, like, I joked when I won the Globe that most people probably hadn't seen my show. At this point, I think more people have, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's in the sphere, but come on, there's like five, 600 shows on TV. And then, you know, I'm watching like a late night clip in Egypt and they're like, Omar Sharif, Mo Salah, Rami Youssef. That's the kind of thing where I'm just like, what in, what, what is happening? This is massively surreal. And I'm hearing from family over there in a way that, um, that's the kind of thing that 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 I can't really fathom. That that's the crazy part, less even so than, you know, watching the live stream of the nominees or anything like that. Well, and I know you just talked about like ego and this not being all about that, but in a way is seeing how people reacted over there give you a sense of validation in a way that the nomination here doesn't like the response that it gets over there the nomination does that feel more validating than what it feels like being here it feels uh, yeah i mean in in a way and it's not even so much about validation it's like about connection you know and in this way that you know i love stand up because and that's something i really miss if we're talking about quarantine miss but i love that because it's 30 people in a room and everything that was in the first season of my show, more than half of that stuff, I had worked out on stage in front of anywhere from eight to maybe 200 people if I was lucky. And then it scales. And then it scales in this way where I'm working on this material for seven, eight years, but then it's connecting with people all over the world. That is 
it's crazy to me. And and it is, yeah, there's 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 a recognition, but it is actually just the excitement of, whoa, the microphone's this loud now, you know? It's not just like at this bar show. It, it, it reaches in this way. And then it kind of just gets the other part of my brain working where I'm like, whoa, you know, we made what is considered a niche show. And then you see how it hits in, in, a, in, in kind of various international countries. And you're like, oh, wow, um, there's not a lot of niche stuff that goes international. Like a lot of the stuff that goes international is like essentially, you know, Fast and the Furious vibes, which I love Fast and the Furious. Uh, but to to have people over there kind of see themselves in something like this. Um, yeah, it's really it's really cool. And it, it just it's exciting. Well, to go off that, I mean, you went from, you know, doing this, making this show under the radar to, you know, it being released one and then it getting the Golden Globe, as you mentioned, and then getting the prestigious Peabody Award to these nominations. So how is it to go from making the show under the radar to then be the creator and star of a show that people have an opinion about? Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. It's um, I haven't really had time to sit and actually reflect on that in a real way because, yeah, everything is, um, it moves really quick. And, and, I, and I would say that there is something about how strange time is right now too, where I can't even tell if it's harder or easier to look at those things. Because on one hand, we're like, oh, everything stopped. But then on the other hand, tomorrow's already Friday. And I'm like, how did that even happen? You know, I don't even understand what's going on. It kind of feels like the sort of thing that I think it'll hit me in like two years. And then I'll be like, oh, whoa, this is, this is a different wave. Because I, I, I haven't come down from it in, in a real way yet. Of course. Well, I mean, you were about, I think I read a month into crafting season two when you got a call about Mahershala Ali being a fan. So one, what is it like even being told that? And two, how much once you got on the phone with him, did the idea change for season two? And, and how much did that phone call influence where you took things? Yeah, it influenced a lot. I mean, probably to put it the simplest, um, we were meant to have the Sheikh character come in at the end of season two. And then Mahershala calls. We had a few other roles that we were like, oh, maybe he could play this role. Maybe he could play that role. And then Ryan, my co-creator, um, was like, man, if we're going to have Mahershala, like, he should, I mean, that dude's just got such a presence. He should be the Sheikh. And we're all like, yeah. He should be the shake. And we're putting all this together over like two days. Like we get this call and we're like, whoa, yeah, maybe he should be the shake. And then, and it's funny too. I think someone at like marketing at Hulu or something is like, hey, if we're going to get a star this big, can he be in the first three episodes? And we're like, man, shut up. Don't tell us what to do. Don't tell us how to make this show. Like, don't tell us what to, you know, this is, this is our show. You know, we'll put him wherever we want, you know? And then, uh, and then we're like, uh, yeah, he should probably be in the first couple episodes if we're going to get rehearsal. Like, why are we gonna? Why are we gonna wait till the end? And so this all happens over like three days. I mean, it's just it's just this whole thing of like, I'm, I I I talk to him on the phone, and then like a week later we get some food, and then I'm like, hey, do you want to be in one episode? And then he says, yeah, I think I could. And then you know that that happened relatively quickly. 
Um, but but then there was just kind of this, yeah, really focused couple of days where we were like, cool, let's go. Let's let's flip this. I don't care if we've, you know, been in the room for a month. Um, that's fine. This is where this should go. And a lot of the ideas we had been working on and coming through, they were all to reach this goal, you know? So so the, it's, it's, it's weird because it's like, sure, certain plot things massively changed, but not really. Like the intention of what we were trying to do, what we were trying to reach, it actually just got stronger. The show is much better for it. There was a bit of a dust up about the writer's room in season two. You, you largely assembled a, a new room of writers. Um, why did you feel the need to start over? I mean, I imagine you want to keep the elements that work, but like, why did you feel you needed sort of a reset as you thought about the direction of season two? Well, one thing that I was able to do, which I wasn't able to do in season one, is I was able to hire people who weren't necessarily writers um, in the way that the eyes that the network would would view them, right? And then what I got to do in season two that I really wanted to do was I got to hire the people who I was really bouncing a lot of these things off of. And so, for example two writers who are in season two that I wasn't able to hire in season one, I was only able to have them on as consultants. Azhar Usman, Maitha Al-Hassan, who were both people who'd really been part of my comedy career for a really long time. And it was exciting to kind of, oh, cool, we made a successful first season. <laughs> and I'm like consulting with them, but I'm like, oh, you guys are, you guys are really writers. And, 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 and that's really the relationship we have. So moving into season two, yeah, you kind of get more of an ability to do what you wanted to do from the jump. But again, like I kind of go into this process with anonymity. So we were able to expand. We were able to promote some people too. And um, yeah, it was really exciting. And, and, and I think it was also like you get to know more of what you want. My, my whole thing is I try to put myself in a room with people who can interrogate me as effectively as possible. That's what I like. I like being put on the spot and I like um, debate and I like the ability to kind of go down as many rabbit holes as we can because um, that that comes from my stand-up background too. That comes from the ability to kind of like really pick something apart. And, and, and so it's really about developing uh, the environment that can kind of do that more. So yeah, so it was really exciting to just kind of continue to refine that going into the second season. You get more clarity on, yeah, what exactly do I need? And uh, in a way that you can't know when you're going into a first season. What were some of the things that sparked debate this season? What were the things you were put on the spot or having to like justify? (laughs) You know, so many. I mean, I think like a big thing that we were really excited to do, um, so much of season one in in the building of it, Rami's character, there's this optimism, you know, and there's this like, he's trying to be a good dude, but so many steps along the way, he's obviously not really doing a good thing. But but we kind of, I think in the way that it often feels in your mind when you're trying to figure something out, there can be phases, I think, for a lot of people where you're like, oh, man, I'm just, I'm the good guy in this, you know? And then you kind of have a moment where you're like, oh, I have I been in the wrong for a while, (laughs) you know? And you kind of start playing things back and you're like, oh, I'm the, it's me, I'm the problem. And and I think that was a big turning point in the 
step we wanted to take for Rami's character going into the second season. And so a lot of the debate really was like, how deep are we going to go? You know, how, how much are we going to strip back his performance of faith, his performance of being a person and really see what is a very scared, ego-driven kind of life. But, but it, it doesn't seem that way right away. But then we kind of look at these actions and look at what we're going to have him do and have happen to him. And, and, and it's going to kind of start to become clear. And, and, and so I think a lot of the debate really came around, um, oh man, this character is so likable. Like how, why would we do that? Are we really going to do that? Or what are we going to do? And, and, and so um, wanting to really dig a hole for him that, that I'm very happy that, that we dug. Yeah, you very much like he transitioned into a little bit of the antagonist this season. He was this like, what what is he doing? He was the unlikable character at times. So it was interesting to see him go from, you know, someone asking questions to like really evaluating what's going on. And I wonder, I mean, I know when you play a character that shares your name, people sort of muddy like where the character starts and where you stop and stuff like that. So I wonder, like, did you see this as an opportunity to really, like, separate um, yourself from the character? Or how much did you also take a step back and evaluate, like, how much am I in some of this? Like, how much do I see myself in what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that he's in a bit of a mess, but I don't, I don't even know that he's necessarily unlikable. And I don't even know that he's necessarily bad. You know, I mean, I, I know that that is how a lot of people might view it. What we're really showing with him is, is what the ego and desire can kind of twist good intentions into and how it can kind of get out of control. And, and, and I think that, you know, we see a flashback episode of him in, in, in season one, something that was really cool too, as you're building season two and, and now that I'm building season three, you kind of look back at the previous episodes and, and almost with like an investigative lens of like, what seeds did I leave myself? You know, what, what proof did I not even notice while we were making it that's there, you know, as to what's headed forward. And, and that influences a lot of decisions. It influenced what we kind of realized was always actually going on with Rami. So it's less of a shift. And, and again, it's more of like, more of like the feeling that you can go through even with your own life when you suddenly are like, oh, that's what was going on a year ago. Oh, now I'm getting perspective on it. He's slowly kind of unpacking. So we're watching somebody unpack and we're watching somebody do it. Um, yeah, where the ugliness is out there. But I, I don't think many people are far off from what's going on with him. I'm not saying that everyone would do those things, but I do think that he's kind of like an alternate version of that. And And I think part of the decision-making for me in terms of real Rami and screen Rami, I do think season two, it's less about what could be considered ugly character traits and more about that I think we leaned into plot that is so clearly not me. Like, I think it's pretty clear that I'm a, you know, comedian TV show person and I'm not a disciple at a mosque who works at a jewelry store and I'm not... um you know, marrying a sheikh's daughter and, and, and all of those things. And so I think that there was a decision for me to put more plot. And, and but it, I don't even think it was motivated from, from removing kind of public versus um, private. It was actually just for the show. 
It was like, I, I, I think for the show, these stakes are going to help clarify, again, the goal of what we're trying to do. And the goal always that we're trying to do here is I'm so interested in watching someone figure out how to be. And I'm so interested in watching a person of faith and, and really seeing that gap between who you want to be and who you actually are. And, and so that, to really distill that, um, kind of deepening the plot was, was important for us. This episode is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus drama series, The Morning Show, nominated for eight Emmys, including those for actors Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, and Martin Short, and director Mimi Leader. The Morning Show explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. Told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives, The Morning Show is an unapologetically candid drama that looks at the power dynamics between women and men and women and women in the workplace. The Guardian calls the series a masterpiece. Visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Well, for many, I mean, this show sort of broadens the portrayals we see of Muslims on TV. And I wonder, what's your earliest memory of seeing a Muslim on TV? And what was the depiction? And how did you feel about that depiction? (laughs) I I always used to joke that um, I used to have this big debate as a kid whether Aladdin was Muslim or not. Because he he had the prayer rug and I knew the rug could fly. But I was like, was he praying on it? Like, Like, I don't know. You know, that, that, that would be, that would be crazy. The idea that the rug could fly, no problem. But the idea that he would prey on it, really? Like, could there really be a Muslim cartoon? Like that, that's how like separate it felt. I don't know. I think, I think the news, you know, I, I really do think the news on a very literal level kind of cropping up as, you know, the enemy in, in an action movie or something like that, um, Obviously, Homeland, which I didn't keep up with Homeland. I actually think the first season of it is amazing television. Like, I think it's really, really well done, very exciting, and a ton of propaganda and very anti-Muslim, but great TV. <laughs> like, like very, like, wow, are they good at making Muslims uh, look like animals? Um, they nailed it. But uh, but I, I it was it was a good piece of TV. But I, I didn't keep on going with it just because you know um, felt like a the true definition of a guilty pleasure. Um, yeah, not much. There's not much that creates obviously a need, but it creates um, a desperate need. You know, it creates a need that I think at times can make it difficult not only to make but to even consume when something comes out that isn't in that bucket. And so as a, you know, creator of this kind of show where there hasn't really been this kind of show, 
Um, certainly not one having like what we've been lucky to have in terms of a, a little bit of a pop culture moment. There's a lot put on it, you know, and I think everyone's kind of in an unfair advantage until there are more shows made. You know, um, from my perspective, I know that this is a drop in the bucket in terms of trying to fill the void of of what someone who might call themselves a Muslim looks like. This is so specific. It's an Arab Muslim guy who lives in New Jersey and jerks off too much. That is not, you know, that's not um, a sizable dent in the, I mean, certainly globally in the billion plus, but even for Muslims in America, there, there are so many different walks of life that, that we can't touch. So, so it kind of, I remember walking into the show and being like, there's a part of me that's like, oh, cool, man. I can't wait to make the show that Muslims love. And then very quickly, I'm like, man, this isn't, um, many will love it and many won't. And I think part of why many won't too will be because the marketing is going to feel like, hey, here's a show for you all, you know? And that, and that's, and I think that that sucks. That sucks for, because if I'm not someone who fits the actual demographic of the guy Rami, I'm watching this and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and, and if I didn't have to have that feeling put on me, I could maybe like love the show, but because it's kind of like, Hey, this is you. And, and here's your documentary, you know, like, <laughs> cause that, that is so much of, of how these things are presented. It's infuriating, you know, it's actually infuriating. So the idea of representation is really tricky because the emphasis that that's continually put on it, I, I find to be difficult for creators because it, it, you kind of go in um, with almost this assignment to like carry out a fiction version of, of what's essentially kind of like a census of <laughs> let me cover all the, you know, and we've got the character who does this and we've got the one who does that, you know, it's like, you know, and we've got, we've got the, the, the Muslim uh, guy and, and we've got the Sudanese Muslim and we've got the, you know, like there's almost this like burden on it to, be the umbrella for all these ideas. And it's ridiculous. And, and, and that's why representation is so tricky because what do you want represented? Do you want good storytelling or are you looking for PR for a group of people that has been buried into the ground? And our show is certainly not PR. Rami is certainly not the model citizen. I think that's a better story, but, uh, but it, it kind of brings up um, probably conflicting thoughts as to whether people find it to be the representation they wanted. Well, I mean, you touched on this in that answer, but like a lot of that comes from the community, but like what has making this show open your eyes to as it relates to Hollywood and its role in shaping the culture or not? Like, are they really shaping the culture or are they like adapting to the demands that eventually come from the voids? Yeah, Hollywood does not shape culture in the way that it thinks it does. I think sometimes it will, but I think for the most part, Hollywood has to be pushed into making the right decisions in the same way that any company would. The sham is the idea that, <laughs> you know, it's it's so open-minded and and understands everything that's going on. So there's this 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 reckoning that really is only solved when people are pushing for the things that they know they need to see. And it usually only ends up happening after there's just overwhelming evidence that the depictions have been really dangerous and that the depictions have been 
damaging, you know, and, 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 and so I think I'm very happy to be part of this wave right now where the change is starting. But I, I, I don't, from where I stand, I don't take my foot off the gas in terms of pushing these networks to be like, hey, my show's not enough if you want to talk about Muslim experiences. And you might want to say, well, there's only X amount of Muslims in, yeah, yeah, but this, again, this, is, this can't be looked at as a census because the weaponization of media against Muslims far exceeds the number of physical Muslims around. So what you're trying to do with more Muslim representation is not make things that just Muslims can watch. You need to make shows that combat the ideas that have been festering for two decades now. And actually they've been festering for way longer than that. But if we just want to look at the ones that have been since the 24 hour news cycle and post 9-11, there are a lot of ideas out there that need more than one show to dismantle. And again, I don't care how people go about dismantling them. I think you should do it in the most creative way. I think it should be cartoons and music videos and, and series and, and ones that are totally politically motivated, ones that have nothing to do, but we need to be everywhere in a way that I think affects the way people here view the world, you know, because this is a whole region. This is, this is, it, it's so big. It's not just about what's happening here, um, but the shows are made here. The ones that shape perception are made here. What happens when, you know, you become sort of the face of like helping bring representation for a marginalized community? You're finding success. You've got people talking about it. And then, you know, you become busy, you get other deals. And what work do you find that you have to hold yourself accountable in terms of helping the next person get that chance? Or what can I do to uh, uplift others so I'm not the only one? I imagine it's a hard thing when you yourself become super busy. So finding the time to make sure you're not the only one. Like, what has that process been like? Well, I mean, I've been in this position. Okay, look, I dropped the show in April 2019, but the show didn't really come out until we won the Globe in January. So people only kind of maybe care about what I have to say for six months, seven months, you know? So, so and then there's this thing of like, hey, man, you're the man now. Like, aren't you going to help me? And it's like, well, it's been, yeah, it's been seven months. Um, you know, <laughs> and I have to continue to make my show. I think I do what you're talking about simply by the work existing. See, because by the work existing and by the work being narrow by the nature of it, and this is why I don't, you know, get into things that I can't fully, fully do. And we're going to continue on the show. We're continuing to grow out looking at the perspective of my mom, at the perspective of my sister and growing those storylines. But the last 20 episodes have mainly been Rami focused, even though we kind of do offshoot episodes. But the reason they are is because that's me. I'm Rami. And so by focusing on what I know and what I do, I think the success of the show, again, creates an opportunity for someone to walk into a pitch room and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah Rami's good, but here's what it's missing. And, and this is what I'm going to do, you know, and, and, and that in and of itself I think helps anyone wanting to get through the door. The fact that I'm able to make stuff that reaches this level, that's what's exciting. Because now, now people can have a reference point to be like, 
Well, he didn't, he didn't even have a special out when, when that show got greenlit. Greenlit my show. That's exciting. That's really cool. And again, as opposed to if I, on my show, tried to cover every single storyline, because then the show wouldn't be good. I guarantee you 100%. It would, the show would feel so annoying and critics would like it because they would feel like they would have to, but it wouldn't really be that good. And then everyone would be like, well, that we tried the Muslim thing and it, was, it didn't work. But no, 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 the show is like annoyingly narrow for some people. And then now it works though, you know? And, and, I, and I do really think the show, I'm very proud of what we've made. I know it works. And I think that it allows more things to get made because I would never make something and think it's the be all end all. Like that would be ridiculous. Again, like I come from stand-up. So when I do stand-up on a lineup, I hang out and watch other comics that I love because even though we're doing the same form of the thing, they're doing a thing that I could never do because they're them and I'm me. And that's how I want television to feel. And I don't think it does, or I, I don't think that it's being marketed that way. I think it gets marketed in a way where, yeah, here's a thing for a whole group or here's a whatever. And that only comes for people to be honest, who aren't white people. And that's, that's where the race stuff starts to come in. That's where, that's the work we're trying to undo. You've directed a number of episodes in the show's two season run. How has developing that skill enriched the writing and your performance as an actor? It's been really cool. I mean, um, for me, the directing is an extension of the writing. And I realized that as early as, you know, write a week on set in season one. And two weeks on set in my writer's room season one, where I realized, oh, like I've been walking this really fine tightrope and stand up where, yeah, I'll tell a terrorist joke, but I'm going to tell mine. Or yeah, I'm going to tell a religion joke, but I'm going to tell mine. And I had kind of cooked up what I felt like was a recipe of how to talk about sex and religion in a way that I could, and in a way that I knew could walk that fine line. But then I'm in a room with other people and I realize oh, I'm going to have to really do a lot of this myself. And again, that's good. I think it's good for the show. And I think it's good for even the people who get put in the writer's room because you want to work with someone who kind of knows what they want to do. Because I've been in writer's rooms where the lead person doesn't know what they want to do and it's a nightmare. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Like I know what I want to do and I'm going to be really protective over that. And, and so that happens in the writing and then it kind of starts to happen on set too, where I realize, oh, cool, like this is boiling in my head and, and I want to make sure it feels the right way. So the directing just feels like a natural extension of it. How is it to perform something that you've, like a world that you've created and with experiences that you recognize versus performing on a show like See uh, Dad Run? Like the connection that you have, how have you sort of seen it make a difference. Yeah, I was really fortunate, you know, yeah, that when I moved to LA, yeah, I got to be in this family sitcom on Nick at Night. I probably had the best shake at that kind of show that anyone could have because the role was written for a 50-year-old dude and they couldn't cast it. They were trying to find and they just didn't find anyone who like vibed with it. And the casting director, Mark Hirschfeld, who's amazing, he brought me in and he was like, hey, do your thing. You know, just read this and, and don't worry about anything that references the age of this or that. And I ended up booking this role from New York. I moved to L.A. It changed my life, like the whole thing. But because the role was 
never written for me. I ended up kind of getting to impact the role because they were like, oh, well, we had decided, we had thought it was going to be this thing, but I guess now that you're here, like, what would you say? And it was this crazy experience of getting to be on an ensemble show with an amazing cast and really great producers. And just, it was, again, the best version of a live camera Nick at night family show that I can imagine. And I got to mess around and it got to kind of blend a lot of things that I loved in stand up where I got to improvise and I got to um, do a bunch of things that I'm very happy I got to experience. But yeah, of course, there's like this level of, you know, I wake up in the morning and check my email and the new pages are there. And for as free as it was, yeah, it's not, it's not my thing, nor was I ever, you know, I was 20, 21. I wasn't ready for it to be my thing, you know. Um, but the experience between kind of waking up and checking your email, shifting to, yeah, being the person sending the email at 3 a.m. and then also waking up at the same time everyone's checking the email. Yeah, that, that's like a big, <laughs> it's a big shift. You know, it's a really, it's a really big shift. Well, at the end of season two, Rami's world has, you know, sort of fallen apart. Where do you see the direction for season three going? Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I think that the Rami character kind of has this gift. He's so clearly faced with where he's at in a way that I think sometimes few humans ever get to really look at where they're at. I think it's about to be the most honest chapter of, of this character's life. And it supports, again, kind of the goal of what we really want to do in seeing him figure out how to be and seeing him understand what he wants and where he actually is. He's at the clearest vantage point to really understand that. And I think we're going to kind of watch him pick apart why he believes what he believes and kind of reassemble something that I think could look like actual faith for him if he does it right. I have ideas of where it's going. I haven't really like plugged in, plugged in. I was trying to turn my brain off for like a month. But I, <laughs> again, it's kind of excites me because I don't fully know. And that that's my favorite way of writing this show. As someone like in the boss role creator EP, is it sort of like nerve wracking to be responsible or partly responsible for thinking through how to make the set healthy and safe for a return? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 partly part of it, but I'm really lucky, you know, Hulu's really, really great about that. A24 is really on it. You know, with anything on this show, I'm the boss, but I have the best support and, and that makes all the difference. Well, Rami, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's been great speaking with you. Oh, thank you. This was awesome. Appreciate it. That's it for the 36th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow for the final bonus episode of Can't Stop Watching. We're talking to Paul Meskel from Normal People. He earned an Emmy nomination for Best Lead Actor in a Limited Series. When I read that scene first in the book, I was like, Ooh, that's a big scene for whoever has to play Connell. And it's a scene that's incredibly well written. And then suddenly you get cast as Connell and you start kind of, the fear sets in and you're like, oh, you are the actors playing Connell. That's a big scene for you. Best of luck, pal. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. 
Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.